This New America NYC event took place on Thursday, May 28, 2015, and is titled, This is How We Fought in Gaza, and features Avner Veriahu, Director for Public Outreach, Breaking the Silence, Emin Muhammad, Palestinian photojournalist, and Peter Beinart, Senior Columnist, Haaretz. Well, thank you um, all for coming. My name is Peter Beinart. Uh, this uh, is Ahmed uh, Mohammed, uh, a Palestinian photojournalist from Gaza. And um, to my left is Avner Bariahu, who uh, is Director of Public Relations for Breaking the Silence, which is an Israeli organization dedicated to um, exposing the truth of Israeli uh, military behavior. And um, Avner is also himself a former IDF paratrooper and sniper team sergeant. So. Um, we will have a conversation for a little while, and then we'll turn it over to you. Um, and um, before we, uh, and there will be a couple of times, just as a fire warning, since we don't have anyone here on the panel who uh, is inclined to defend the Israeli government or the Israeli Defense Forces, there will be some times when I play uh, devil's advocate and 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 pose those questions that I think uh, would were someone of that political persuasion here, they would they would likely put forth. Um, so I guess before we go into the, into the question of what it was actually like to be a soldier or to be a civilian during the war, I, I want to um, just ask for a little bit of context about the war um, uh, uh, from both of the panelists. And I'll start with Avner. If, if, if an American came to you and said, um, oh, yeah, I remember last summer there was this war in Gaza, what was it about? What, why did it happen? What was going on with that? Um, uh, I know that's a very difficult question. One could start 100 years ago. Um, but for you, as you try to make sense of it, what do you think is the, are the, is the critical context that people have to understand uh, to understand what, why this war happened and what its significance was? Um, so thank you, Peter. And Iman, it's, it's great to be on the panel with you. It's just so unbelievable that it's almost impossible for us to meet um, almost anywhere. Um, in Israel or in Palestine. Um, so I, I think it's, for, for me, it's, um, um, you know, it's, it's a real pleasure to have this chance to, to talk and meet um, and share uh, thoughts and experiences. Um, you, you know, we, we talked about this a lot internally in Breaking the Silence when we understood uh, that we are again in this cycle um, of violence. We are again this reoccurring uh, uh, war um, um, operation, fighting, no matter how you want to call what happened this, this last summer. Um, and when we really try to think why this is happening again and why this is reoccurring, um, we didn't want to go back to the, um, I think, the regular conversation of, well, who started and, well, this, is, this happens again after there was sort of uh, um, 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 an, an attempt to, to resolve the Hamas Fatah friction um, and go back to the siege or the rockets or Gilad Shalit. And, but but for, for us, uh, um, as an organization that has been documenting the Israeli occupation for over a decade now, um, and this is really the, the second large operation in Gaza that we've been covering, um, we detect a massive change in Israel in the past decade. And this change is something that we feel hasn't been addressed enough. Um, 
you know, post uh, the Second Intifada, the disengagement from Gaza, and the Second Lebanese War, sort of more or less around those three defining years, we see two important things that, that we found that are relevant to this operation uh, sort of happen inside the Israeli military um, uh, because of the understanding, I think, that we're not going to any sort of uh, uh, process. Um, and I think it's interesting, in, in Hebrew, it's not even called the peace process, right? It's the diplomatic process. The word peace is even lacking there. Uh, but uh, we really see this, this, this idea, these two ideas, these two fundamental ideas uh, that have um, sunk in deeply. The one is because this is an asymmetric war of you know, one of the strongest militaries in the region versus guerrilla groups, terrorist groups, um, then we will actually find ourselves in a reality that we'll never have a clear victory. And the only thing we can do is what we call the Dachia doctrine, this idea that we will, uh, um, Dachia is a neighborhood in, in, in Lebanon where we pretty much have destroyed an entire neighborhood, a Hezbollah neighborhood, and this has become sort of a doctrine, this idea that uh, a disproportionate response pretty much, right? Why? Because we're gonna have to go into Gaza every two years to mow the lawn, and then I'm quoting uh, Israeli generals who are talking about going in every two years and mowing the lawn, and this is what mowing the lawn looks like, right? So we, and the second idea, the second, if you like, doctrine that this, is, this war is based on is this idea that Israelis have zero tolerance for soldier casualties, right? And there's been a very massive change in the past decade um, with uh, um, specifically um, a committee led by a guy named Asa Kasher, another guy named Amos Yadlin that sort of have brought civilian populations inside modern warfare by saying that Israeli soldiers are also civilians and therefore their lives as soldiers are more important than the lives of innocent civilians. Right? And, and, and the testimonies, of course, back this. But these two ideas, and I know this isn't the, the, the historical sure, uh, sure. Uh, context maybe you're looking for, but it's definitely the, the tactical context that has put us in this reality that we know for a fact that there's going to be another operation. Um, it's not only because we think that is true, but the, the former chief of staff, Benny Gantz, just came on uh, record uh, a few weeks ago saying there will be another operation, it will be much worse, and this is part of our tactic of, of course, mowing the lawn, but this is how we fight, we choose to fight our wars in Gaza, and this is how we're maintaining the occupation around Gaza. In the West Bank, we'll have the checkpoints, the patrols, and what we know from this reality of occupation in the Gaza Strip, every two to four years we'll have these uh, operations, unless we dramatically change the way we're, we're, we're looking at the Palestinians and at, and at Gaza, and with his current government, of course, that's not going to happen. Uh, my same question to you. If someone, American, if someone else said, what happened? What was that all about? Why was there all this fighting? What do you think are the critical context that someone needs to understand to understand why this war happened? I think I gave up on the on the answer saying just go and, and see the media. The media is not given much anymore or it's given uh, its own story. It's not even given the Israeli or the Palestinian story anymore. It's, it became, it has its own um, aspect, its own angle and it's, it's focused on that. When um, airstrikes are happening in Gaza, you see some other headlines on the news and you wonder if, if this is the same planet or are we just being disconnected amazingly. 
So uh, I think it's maybe the knowledge about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the long-lasting uh, casual wars launched uh, by the Israeli military on Gaza, it, it got more um, light in the recent um, seven, eight years. And people became more aware, but when, when they just ask you such a, a general question, honestly, I, I kind of get traumatized, not sure where should I even begin. So complicated became the easiest answer for me. It's, it's just complicated. It's, it's, I, that's why I take photos, because I don't want to give such explanations. And because if you see, you will understand. Maybe you will still have certain questions, but you will understand. And we're rising with some yellow pages media and some directed media with agenda into a different level where we started to even doubt our own eyes and say it's Photoshop. It's, it's not real. So it's really hard to answer such a, a, a question in, in one line kind of answer. And um, for so long, I, I think Gazan journalists and photojournalists try to answer this question, but they've been taught the hard way that it would be more educate yourself kind of answer now. To just give more of a responsibility on the receiver to take control of what they want to know. Not only what do you get, so you get this, but maybe you need to know something else, something more. And it's being given by different organizations risking their lives, like breaking the silence, to just give you that, exactly that kind of aspect or angle of, of what's going on. And um, sadly, it only became more credible since photojournalists and, and journalists, uh, foreign journalists had access to Gaza. Um, and it, it got a little bit, people got a little bit distracted because it's now it's, it's just uh, stories to sell instead of stories to inform. So it became more explosive headlines where you, you just want to know juicy details, but it's, it's, not, it's not anything that would make you more in, inform, informed or uh, understanding of what exactly going on. And it's, it's definitely a big side of it is that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict got out of hand uh, through the last uh, couple of wars or the three wars, uh, that it, it became much harder to explain it. I had to say sure, a quick, sure. a quick sure. thing about that. I mean, you're talking about the, the media coverage, and I think one of the interesting things that I felt during uh, the, the war, the operation from within Israel, is that we, I as, a, as an Israeli that wanted to know what's happening in Gaza, which was you know, maybe half an hour or 40 minutes from, from Tel Aviv, from where, from where I lived, um, it was very difficult. I mean, pictures were not coming to mainstream Israeli media. Um, and, and the reporting was very, very, uh, not, I can't even say one-sided, there wasn't real reporting. And, you know, newspapers that were even just headlines saying the numbers of Palestinians that were killed were, sh were shouted out publicly. Um, the, the, the really small amount of newspapers that did tr do that. An interesting thing that, that came out after the war is that the, uh, Channel 2, which is a leading Israeli news station, came out and actually said, that during the, the, the war itself, um, the, the office of the, um, um, 
the prime minister, right, who was you know, in charge of PR, and asked, asked the chan Channel 2, why aren't you not showing more pictures of what's happening in Gaza? We want to show the Israeli public what we're doing in Gaza. Right? And the media said, no, no, they can't handle it. They sort of censored it on their own. So it's not the prime minister wanted us to really see what was happening. They wanted to show how successful they were. Right? But Israelis didn't really see this. Right? Maybe they chose not to see it. But friends of mine that were coming to Israel back then, from the States, for example, said, we're seeing totally different images. And I think in that aspect, you know, what, what we're both trying to do, um, you know, we're not uh, journalists, but we, we do see ourselves as providers of information, is allowing the public everywhere to have you know, a, a deeper and new, more nuanced view um, of the reality. And I think that's really what it's about, understanding this is the reality. So, And, and what, were, what was the Israeli media afraid of? That there would be uh, a backlash politically if they showed these, or that it, it, they, they had a sense that this is not what their audience wanted to see? I mean, in general, media tends to view the more, you know, the more gory stuff you can show during the war, the more newspapers you sell. So what, we, what do you think their calculation I, was? Yeah, so I think it was sort of like self-censorship, not because they felt that the government mm -hmm. will, will have a pushback, but because their viewers wouldn't really be interested mm -hmm. in seeing that. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's really, you know, just it's my thoughts. I'm there there is, you know, journalists that have better ideas around that. But um, I wanted you to, you talked a little bit about during the, during the, the slideshow, but I wanted to talk a little more about the impact of these wars on Gaza society. How is Gaza different today than it was before these wars? What has been the, what, what do you, what has been the kind of the cultural, social, political impact of all of this trauma? Um, I'm not an analysis, so I can only speak of what I experienced. Yeah. Um, through documenting um, stories in the first war, people were actually looking at, at journalists and photojournalists and cameramen as if they were coming to rescue them. Like, come, show the war. They, they need to know. Once they know, something is going to change. This was during the war? The first, yeah, the first one. Mm -hmm. But during the second one, which was um, for a, sh a shorter period of time, it, it, it kind of shake them a little bit, and the third destroyed their trust in any kind of superheroes coming from the outside world, coming from the international committee and trying to rescue them. So it's despair. I think despair and frustration became, um, it's not only in Syria, it's also in Gaza, pushing people to take in the sea and just get out of the whole reality, escaping the reality and taking them into an extreme alternative. So I think it's, it's, it is despair, but at the same time, it's uh, distrust. Um, when the first war ended, during the aftermath, there had been um, an amazing international movement that called for ending the siege, solving the problems that made things go worse in Gaza. Um, people were welcoming these internationals, um, international convoys and, and, uh, and committees. In the second war and the third, and during the aftermath, people kind of shut, shut, shut down the media attention, the journalists, whatever. If you're a journalist, you will have risk of your camera being smashed than them saying, yeah, come, I'll tell you my story. It's kind of it's they kind would, of the risk would be that the camera would be smashed 
Why? Because people are in pain. And I think as journalists, we, we, we weren't prepared to understand that. People are suffering and living with their misery afterwards, through the aftermath, all through the aftermath. They struggle with that on their own, mentally, emotionally, probably, definitely going to be also financially because their houses are being destroyed. Their, all their assets are, are gone. So um, when you come to someone and you just want to... So tell us about your pain. As easy as that, to invade their privacy, invade their um, vulnerable time and just say, give me your pain so I can make some money out of it. That's all they started to see, whether it was NGOs, uh, media channels, whatever it was. It, it, it created this distrust kind of relationship and it became easier. Um, I know that the, the, the older generations of Palestinians who worked during the first intifada in Israel and had close connections with Israelis. They were, many of them were friends. Many of them used to visit each other. That was when they were allowed to uh, enter Gaza and Palestinians were allowed to um, go and work in Israel. Uh, but after the second and third uh, war, even these kind of minor hopeful connections were destroyed because nothing much is left. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of them, surprisingly, were feeling betrayed by their uh, previous uh, employers in Israel. And, and that to me, that was because I'm, I'm a younger generation and they didn't exactly witness that kind of relationship. It, it wasn't possible. We don't, as Gazans, we don't even have connection with West Bank uh, Palestinians. So that was kind of surprising where a Palestinian would come to you and say, I served. In, in Israel, I, I was building their buildings for two decades, and this is how they repay me, destroying my house. And I think it's, it, that is a wake-up call that is much needed because it goes beyond politicians and, and the army and the militants, and it's not a balanced thing, and it's, it's not like you can put all apples and oranges in the same basket. Uh, I want to ask you, um, about um, an interview that Amos Oz, the, the, you know, the well-known um, Israeli novelist and, and Dove gave during the war, which, which got a lot of attention here. Um, uh, and I think uh, it encapsulated an argument that you weren't heard a lot, but it, I think it, it, it had more credibility with some people because it came from him. As you probably know, he was interviewed by, German, by a German magazine, and he said, um, uh, he said, wait a second, I want to ask you some questions before you start asking me questions. He said, question one. What would you do if your neighbor across the street sits down on the balcony, puts his little boy on his lap, and starts shooting machine gun fire into your nursery? Question two. What would you do if your neighbor across the street digs a tunnel from his nursery to your nursery in order to blow up your home or in order to kidnap your family? Um, so that was the, the, I wanted you to respond to that, since that is, a, that is the, I would say, in some ways, was the dominant narrative, certainly in the American Jewish community during the war, about saying, what do you expect Israel to do facing these realities? Well, I'll try to answer as shortly as possible, but, but to the point. Um, we have choices. We have choices as individuals. We have choices as communities. We have choices as definitely as sovereign countries. And we choose, we choose 
to not only maintain the, the current situation, but entrench it. We choose to do that in the West Bank, and we choose to do this in Gaza. That's, that's the way I see things, and that's the way we think, see things in, in breaking the silence. There is a choice. Um, but there's also a second choice. Um, while we're in this occupation, which we're trying to end, and part of our documentation and, and testimonies is an attempt to end the occupation, and Gaza is occupied by the Israeli military in a different way than the West Bank, but it is occupied. Um, but even within this occupation, we do have choices. And we really tried with this testimonial book not to talk about why we fought in Gaza, but the how. And I think the how teaches us a lot, right? Understanding the methods, understanding the, what weapons we chose to use. <laughs> um, okay. So definitely something that we have chosen to do. And, and you know, I would, I would be happy to, to, to have this discussion with Amos Oz, who I know uh, um, respects our work, but I think Israelis have a lot of issues you know, when we start talking about Gaza, because you know, there's this, the lack of empathy we have for Palestinians in the West Bank is tripled, if not quadrupled in Gaza, because it's behind the fence, because you know, the, the Hamas is in control there, and, and because and because and because. Uh, but, but even within this, this war, we chose, for example, just a quick example, we chose to shoot artillery. Right? I, I was an infantry soldier. I served as a paratrooper. I know nothing really about artillery. Um, and I learned a little bit. And I learned that unlike the weapons that we shot that were aimed, of course, to kill, I was a sergeant of a sniper's team, and that's what I was trained to do. But uh, a sniper's bullet is supposed to hit a specific target, right? And if you don't hit that specific target, then you missed, and the mission was a failure. When you shoot artillery, right, we're shooting a, a, a weapon that by uh, uh, um, description is actually a non-accurate weapon, right? And when you shoot an artillery explosive shell, it kills anyone in the radius of 50 meters and it injures everyone in the radius of 150 meters. In cast lead, uh, what you've called the first war, which I think is interesting, and I'll be happy to talk to you about the first, second, and third, um, and if that's something that is commonly used. Because we, we thought maybe we would call this booklet Cast Lead 3, right? Um, um, and and when we, when in Cast Lead, Israel shoots uh, uh, 3,000 of, the, 3, of these explosive shells. And this, of course, caused massive destruction. This time around, Israel shoots close to 20,000 of these explosive shells, right? Um, this is something that we have never used in, in our... Uh, um, 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 friction with our conflict within, with, with the Palestinians. And we chose to do this in one of the most populated areas in the world. Right? Now, this isn't the only aspect of the last war. Right? There were areas that were declared as killing zones, and the rules of engagement were ones that we have never heard. Right? There were more than 5,000 aerial bombardments between half a ton and a ton bombs that were, that were, that were dropped. From testimonies of soldiers inside these war rooms, we know that many of these decisions that were made were far from uh, professional, were far from just, um, and were far from justified from the soldiers that were in these war rooms. So um, I think there is the right for Israelis to protect themselves. And I am an Israeli, and I want my family to be safe. I think the best way for my family, my community, my country to be safe is to end the occupation. 
because that's not going to happen tomorrow, I think there also are choices you can make during the war and during this conflict. And we chose to shoot 20,000 artillery shells into Gaza, right? We chose to create these uh, uh, sterile zones, right? We chose to, 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 to have these rules of engagement. And I think that it's important to have a discussion on these specific topics, um, also internally inside Israel, right? With the liberal camp, right? People like Amos Oz who represent a liberal voice, but aren't willing really to look into the specifics and saying, you know, they had tunnels into kindergartens, which eventually was found to be false and something that wasn't, not, there wasn't even one case of that, but that was the sense, that was the feeling. And we're addressing that. We're saying, look, 70 soldiers, almost 70 soldiers, a quarter of them officers, met with us and told us their stories, right? And they were there because they felt the urgency maybe to protect their country. They felt the urgency, they were called in and they went. But the, whom, who better than them can say, we chose to fight the war this way and we had other choices. So that would be my answer, uh, um, um, not only to Mosos, but to those entire claims. Um, we, we have to continue asking ourselves, not because we want to create a nicer occupation or cleaner occupation, but I would be happy if we say, you know, we cannot use artillery shells in one of the most populated areas in the world. That would save thousands of lives. Let's start there, for example. Um, Iman, I want to ask you about a little bit about Hamas, which is obviously it was very unusual in the United States. Whenever Gaza came up, Hamas came up immediately. And um, um, so some of the conversations that took place here were, are, are, are people in Gaza angry at Hamas or other armed groups for launching these rockets because this is contributing to this ferocious counterattack? Um, do, what about the claim that uh, Hamas is uh, hiding among civilian areas and therefore exposing people to risk? Um, uh, or did people feel um, that given the suffering that they were, they were undergoing with uh, the blockade, um, they, it gave them some sense of being empowered to at least see that Palestinian groups were firing? I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the relationship between Hamas and other armed groups and Gazan civilians. So uh, Hamas took control um, around 2007, and, and Palestinians um, had their own, um, some of them were with, some of them were against. It, it was a fair election, but the consequences of electing Hamas was the thing that Palestinians realized it's not for the best interest of Gazans. And probably Hamas themselves, as a government, uh, understood that. But the huge mix-up is when we say, for an example, in the States, when they say Hamas, they just generalize. Hamas and Qassam are totally different. They are same, but they are same organization. They are the same um, uh, Islamic militant uh, organization, but it's not the same um, on the ground. It's not the same in, in, in the field, and it's it hadn't been the same since since 2007. The government is one thing. The militant um, uh, organization of Al Qassam is totally different, and people honestly in, in Gaza, uh, Fatah people, any other. Um, um, political affiliations never in, in the history of Gaza disagreed with Al-Qassam. Shockingly and surprisingly enough, 
but they never disagreed with them, only because they only interfere when things get bloody. And people are going to say, well, there, are, there had been the rockets being fired on Israel. Yeah, that's true. Eight years, or let's say 10, okay, I'll give you 20. But the whole Palestinian occupation, the Israeli occupation to Palestine, and, and the whole, the main issue, the main source of the problem had been going on for um, 67, 68 years. Why are we ignoring that and only talking about the rockets? Well, of course, if you're going to slap someone so hard, they will slap back. And not that it's, it's, it's going to be solving anything. It's not. It's, obviously, it's not. But it's escalating. And when you see um, Hamas talking about uh, what they want to do, that doesn't necessarily mean that they represent Palestinians. But if you if when it gets to Abu Ubaidah, which is the spokesman of Al-Qassam, no one would dare to say anything, only because it gets to a point where Qassam, when they interfere with certain things, people just feel so violated, so defeated, that they just want to go to the extreme. And that's what leaders are pushing for both ways, only that it's, it's, not, it's not balanced. On the same side, um, when the third war uh, started, um, and they don't go by the operation names, because to us it was just a war. I have no idea what started it. Rockets, it had been going on. And before the third war, rockets actually stopped. To some extent, it stopped. Uh, and there wasn't much to, to kill 2,500 people for it, or to escalate to that extent. But that's, that's, that's just people talking. But at that point, Hamas was one step from falling into the edge. Was exactly one step. No one thought that Hamas would get into that level where they're like, they are no more um, elected. They are no longer uh, popular. People don't want this to keep going on for one reason or another. And it has nothing to do with Israelis alone. It has to do with a lot of internal uh, issues that Palestinian Palestinian um, sides had to argue about and to, to 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 question the need of having this government. And whenever a government would last for a period of time and it wouldn't improve things, it's time for, to to make a change. Whether it was to get an, a third one or just to, to for the government to resign, and I think that was the issue. It was not. The, the fact that um, Israel did not approve that Hamas would rule Gaza. Gazans never cared about um, the Israelis' military opinion about it or the government. But it, when, they st when the Israeli military started that war, I was in shock, mostly because why are they working against their agenda? They want Hamas done. Why are they empowering their presence? Why are they telling them stay? Actually, now people are going to turn to Hamas and say, well, they are protecting us, so we want them. If, if they are gone, what, what do we have? Maybe not 2,000, maybe 5,000, maybe 10,000. Maybe no one is going to say anything or do anything back, especially after the whole distrust thing that happened between the Gazan um, people and the international community. I actually think the Israeli military wants Hamas to stay. I mean, it, it, it yeah, does. and I think that, I mean, there were like discussions about this and, and, and media quotes 
that high-ranking commanders were quoted saying, we prefer Hamas to stay in power, or because if the, the PA is, is irrelevant, and other groups are maybe even worse. So yeah, we're sort of you know, in the situation where you know, yeah, the cycle is going on. Up, yeah. Sure. Uh, thank you so much, Iman. Thank you so much, Avner. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, 3.0 unported license. To learn more about the New America Foundation, please visit us at newamerica.org.